Welcome to The Big Deal with Glenn Ferris, episode 59. One of my favorite things about this podcast is that I get to sit down with incredibly interesting people and ask them all the dumb questions I want because I've got them trapped. And today's conversation is fantastic, and it's with Annette Becker, and she is the Texas Fashion Collection Director and Curator at the University of North Texas. What is the Texas Fashion Collection, you may ask? Well, if the world's largest closet and a thousand-year-old garment from Bolivia sounds exciting, you'll want to keep listening. I'm going to post the links in the show notes, but go ahead and follow Texas Fashion Collection on Instagram. You will not be disappointed. All sorts of pictures of clothes on there. It's fascinating stuff. While you're at it, go check out glennferriscommercial.com and go ahead and follow me at Glenn Ferris on the social media and you will be disappointed to find I haven't posted anything on Instagram for a while. I know that because Alyssa got after me the other day for it again. So need to work on that. Anyways, I hope you find this podcast helpful and, and useful. And if you do, Get on your podcast subscriber app, whatever it may be, Apple Pods or Spotify or Overcast. Tune in, whatever it is, and go ahead and subscribe. Impress your friends. Tell someone about it. Maybe write a review if you can. Thank you so much for listening. Now give it up for Annette Becker. Yeah, so the last time we talked, I remember where it was. It was the uh, the level, the club level. Yeah, up at uh, Apogee Stadium. Apogee <laughs> Stadium, and there was no deathly uh, virus going around. And we were just clinking our drinks and having a good time. Oh, that time of innocence, just mere months ago. <laughs> when was that? Was that January or February or... Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I think it was celebrating the Diamond Eagles announcing their their project, um, and they That's selected right. the UNT Texas Fashion Collection. So yeah, yeah all the, all the glass clinking. Uh, it was a really fun event, and I've been so uh, just happy with being a part of the Diamond Eagles Society. Uh, it's a very very cool thing. Well, we'll I'm sure we'll talk about that. Well, anyways, Annette. You are the Texas Fashion Collection Director and Curator at UNT. That's it, yeah. (laughs) So what does that do? (laughs) Like, what's your job, really? Well, I guess you could probably (laughs) add to that, like, floor sweeper and uh, donor relations and vacuuming garments and doing research. Um, So as the sole permanent full-time staff person running a collection of nearly 20,000 historic and designer garments and accessories, um, I've done probably all the glamorous things that people associate with fashion, and then probably all of the unglamorous things no one would ever even want to think about. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what does that entail? I mean, it's a big collection of clothes. Like, I I don't know anything about clothes. Like, why should I be interested in... Why why is anyone interested in a collection of garments? Well, the... The reason that I came to fashion history is one that I think a a lot of people share. Um, It's that clothing is probably the most accessible form of art that we have in our everyday lives. And it's probably one of the forms of art criticism that we engage in most frequently, even if we don't think about it that way. Yeah, like that guy's got a stupid sweater on. Yeah, (laughs) exactly, exactly. So every, you know, every morning when we get dressed, even if we think we don't care about fashion, 
very few of us are walking down the street with a bed sheet wrapped around us. So, you know, we're actively making... Have you dis- been downtown lately? That, <laughs> right. that actually happened this morning. But. Yeah, maybe with COVID, our, our dress codes are getting a little too relaxed. <laughs> with the intro music. Right Sorry about that. Um, man, yeah. So I guess what you're saying is people wake up every single day and make a decision about what to put on their bod. Exactly. And yeah. and that really relates to who we are as individuals. We always feel like it's a personal decision how how we clothe ourselves. That's how we differentiate who we are from other people. But it's also how we communicate who we are through, you know, a set of codes. So if you show up to a black tie event in a sweatshirt, that is a decision. Even if you are saying <laughs> that you don't care about fashion, you know what you're saying when you do that. In fact, that's uh, that's Alyssa's favorite thing to say at some event. It's like, that's a decision. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, man, okay. So when I was kind of pre-gaming uh, uh, this this chat, let's see, where's this question? Okay. <laughs> uh, this is my like, you know, it's the end of the day, the coffee's wearing off question. Um, is fashion a real art or is it people just sitting around BSing about each other's clothes? <laughs> So I guess what you're saying is it's an art as far as it's someone's expression, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I I think. Because fashion is one of those things that I'm like, "Eh, I don't know, man. Like, is it? What is this? What are we doing here? (laughs) Sell me on it. Yeah, I I think everything exists on a spectrum. So I think some things are more um, applied design that's meant to be primarily functional. But even with that, you know, every utilitarian thing we have around us has been designed by someone. So thinking about it as art is really just a mentality. It's, it's how you choose to approach that thing. Um, and something that I think often causes friction in thinking about the Texas fashion collection is that we have a lot of pieces that exist primarily to be seen within the world of high fashion, which definitely feels removed from a t-shirt. Right. Like that seems to exist in a completely different sphere. But I really think that innovation happens when people are focusing on something in its specificity. Um, so if we didn't have high fashion, we probably wouldn't have the clothing that we can buy in a big box store. We wouldn't have the things that fill most of our closets. Um, so it's on, you know, the Parisian runways that new ideas are being um, creative, um, created that fashion can be pushed forward in some way. And you'd be mm. surprised at the connections that the Paris runway might have to our closets. Well, how does it get there in such a ridiculous form on a runway? As, and we're calling that like high art. Uh, how does, I guess, is it because to just be utilitarian there's only so many ways you can make a shirt or a me uh, or a piece of clothing that like actually functions in the world. Like do things get watered down from that? It's like, Oh, that's an idea, but let's make that uh, palatable for the target <laughs> consumer or whatever. Yeah. I, I, I don't think, know. I think there's definitely some of that, that an artistic um, sensibility might end up kind of being abstracted as it filters down the market. 
Um, but I think there are also some innovations that have happened in the world of high fashion that we probably don't even think about needing to have ever been created. Yeah. Um, so for example, um, Velcro. Like, yeah, Velcro, long zippers. Yeah. Can you imagine a world where the longest zipper is two inches long? Yeah. Like it wasn't even a century ago that a fashion designer like really? introduced long zippers to the world oh, wow. of, of our clothing. Um, also putting um, fabric on the bias. So most of our clothing, the fabric creates a, a grid as it's been woven. And if you turn that grid on the side, um, it makes fabric kind of clingy or stretchy. Um, something like that. That like that was only introduced to fashion in the 1930s. Oh, like uh, stretchy shorts. I got a pair of shorts that are kind of stretchy. Yeah. Is it like that? Or even, yeah. so stretchy shorts are probably made out of a knit. And most of the performance knits that we have today yeah, yeah. were invented probably in like the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Yeah. Like that's not even that old. We know people older than the fabric that your shorts are made of. That's crazy. Yeah. And the thing about clothes, and I'm, I'm living this in real time, is at like pretty much it's a cultural thing across every, in some form or fashion, even the people who are wearing a lot less than we are, they got something that they're putting on in the morning, you know, like every, it's a universal, I guess. It's a human universal, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, and it, I think it's really interesting that while like covering our bodies in ways that are beyond utilitarian exist everywhere, there are these different sets of um, basically like codes and symbols that cultures yeah. have. Um, you know, even within our own American culture, if you think about something like leopard print, um, you know, in some contexts, that's the trashiest thing you can imagine. Uh -huh. And in some contexts, it's high fashion, yeah. you know, that an individual thing can have so many meanings. Yeah. Or there's some tribe that's like, dude, that killed, that guy killed a leopard. Right. <laughs> is, what, is what that actually means, you know? Exactly. And that's crazy. So your background is art history. Yeah, I'm trained as an art historian. Right now I'm working on a PhD in history at UNT, um, oh, part-time wow. on on top of the full-time job that I have. So where'd you grow up? Um, I grew up on a farm in rural Western Kansas. <laughs> um, the closest Walmart's oh, 90 miles away man. and the closest airport's about a five hour drive. What town? Uh, it's called Lenora. It's I quite charming. <laughs> uh, the person who started Russell Stover Candies is from there. And I think that oh. is mainly, that's probably the only reason it's still on any map. <laughs> so what made you decide to get into this? Because it kind of sounded like your art history had a focus in fashion. Like what, what was it about the the farm life that put you in, on this path? Well, it wasn't really until leaving the farm that I, I found this. What type um, of farm was it though? Was it a dairy farm? Uh, I got a lot of dairy a, a farms wheat farm. Wheat, wheat, wheat and beef. Oh, wheat's big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of wheat out there in Kansas. Oh yeah, huge, huge fields. Yeah, it's it's so beautiful, um, but definitely not exactly Parisian runaways. <laughs> um, yeah, like any any good farmer's daughter going to college, I started out studying engineering. You know, it's oh. a very practical, stable thing to do. Where'd you go? Um, University of Kansas. Oh, yeah, Lawrence, the yeah. Big, big city. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. My, my parents call it the liberal tumor the on liberal. the state, which might tell you even more about where I grew yeah. up. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, so needless to say, going from rural western Kansas to the liberal big city, um, I was definitely exposed to a lot of new ideas. Um and pretty quickly decided to drop engineering. Um, no slight to engineers, but I got kind of bored with the math. Um, yeah. It's 
I think it's easier to prove things with numbers than it is with words. Um, so I was looking for a challenge and there was a, there is a fantastic art museum on KU's campus. Mm. Um, so I switched to studying art history, um, but in the, the art history 101 classes where you're sitting in a room with 400 people, the lights are down and it's just slide after slide after slide of art that I had never seen in person. I felt kind of disconnected. Yeah. Um, but then one faculty member offered a fashion history course and I knew that she was brilliant. Um, so I thought, why not give this a shot? At the very least, it'll be something I can laugh about later because mm. fashion history sounds so far removed from where I was from. Um, and from the first day I was hooked yeah. from the very first day. So yeah, it's been over a, a decade in the making. I mean, there's a lot of art history major jokes out there, I'm sure. But you actually took the degree and ended up kind of doing what that person who has that degree is supposed to do. It doesn't seem like, it seems like most art history majors become baristas, I guess is what I'm trying to say. How did you get to UNT from, by way of uh, Lawrence, Kansas? Um, it was kind of a circuitous path. I think I definitely lived out some of the jokes about our history majors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely was working three part-time jobs at one point. Um, yeah. Like, what do you do with that degree? Like, if I met someone, I'd be like, "What are you? who hires that? Yeah, honestly, um, having only an undergrad degree in art history, it's pretty hard to find anything. Oh, so you've got to do... Um, more research and exactly and oh, okay. you know that i was sense. i was the the bright-eyed earnest you know young kid <laughs> right off the farm who thought if i got all a's i'd get the job immediately <laughs> um but it, it took a little while I, I took a lot of random jobs working um at one point i was an actress on a haunted train in french Lake, indiana like you gotta say yes to things sometimes yeah, gotta get out there and see the world <laughs> exactly um, everything's impressive if when you're from a small town it's lenore it's lenora yeah lenora. Wow. That's um, awesome. but yeah needless to say um when it was hard for me to find jobs in museums and instead i was working on a haunted train um i realized it was time to go to grad school um i applied to <laughs> nyu um, let's to do the, more school exactly that's such a good answer yeah yeah, I, more uh, school. yeah luckily for me it was the the right answer yeah. um so i applied to nyu the courtauld institute in london which is considered the best program in the world for fashion history um and unt and UNT offered me the best funding. Um, nice. The advisor I had um, upon sending out my acceptance letter also sent her cell phone number and told me to call her with any questions. Oh, nice. Um, so I, I knew I was coming into a good environment here. And I think I think I made the right decision. I could have been in New York. I could have been in London. But Denton yeah. offered me the opportunities that I really needed. Yeah, you often see like London, Rome, Paris, Denton kind of in the oh of course <laughs> yeah, of course in that list <laughs> see it's not top but it's like it's it's in there hong kong is sometimes in there. moscow <laughs> denton um did you come to denton before you moved here or were you like eh, i'm going to denton this is going to sound so terrible I felt like I was signing up for a prison sentence moving here, <laughs> which I should probably not be that, that honest, um, but I had been living in Chicago, you know, with art museums everywhere and yeah. public transportation. Well, on the map, it's yeah. not impressive. It really yeah. isn't. It's like, what? Yeah. It's not even Dallas? Ugh. Exactly, exactly. Like it's uh, the, yeah. yeah, in the, the backyard of a thing that I'm, at that point, I knew nothing about. Um, so yeah, I, I moved here, um, 
the day that I needed to start orientation for grad school. Um, that afternoon, I started volunteering at the Texas Fashion Collection. I didn't even have a bed in my apartment yet, but I knew why I was here. So yeah. I was going to get straight to it. Um, and here I am, you know, seven years later, and I could not be happier. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so cool. What was your first impression when you got here? Okay, hang on. Seven years ago, uh 2012 it was 2013 2013 yeah, yeah. um well, remember what was going on at that time yeah i know it was like I said, yeah like we were saying a more innocent time oh yeah every time uh, was a more innocent time yeah i don't um, know it was it was interesting pulling in um the apartment i had was uh basically the back um the backyard of the the beer barn right off yeah. the interstate so probably not the most glamorous yeah. introduction right by <laughs> unt exactly, yeah. exactly concrete city or cement city yeah yeah i naively thought if i walked a mile to work in chicago i could easily do that here and Isn't turns, weird yeah it's a, it's a different experience it yeah. is yeah when it's concrete city and mm -hmm. you move some you know you move to denton in august that was a mistake yeah yeah <laughs> yeah no that's when i got here i got here like august 8th of 2003 and it was coming from boston and i was like what have i done i've made such a mistake you know i'm fighting with a cockroach at the tomato i'm like <laughs> i can't believe i'm here why why did i do this uh but it but it ended up being the best thing i've ever done i mean it's such a cool town what'd you get involved in when you get here you you went and volunteered at the uh, texas fashion collection yeah that's a big deal yeah especially yeah. for what you want to do yeah, it was it was exactly where I knew I needed to be. Um, I felt lucky to be there, especially because um, the former director who retired after thirty years, um, she was she had been the um, the director of the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, hmm. which is basically the best job in my field in the entire country. Um, so knowing that I could come to Denton and study under someone who basically like she she honed her mind and her skills in, in an incredibly elite environment but then also chose to come back to denton um like i i knew that our values would align because of that um so yeah i spent a lot of time there um i i think i was in a pretty typical grad school mentality of just trying to do as much networking as i could so i spent a lot of time at museums in the area yeah yeah so wh what is grad school like uh for fashion um, so I, I got my master's degree in art history with a minor in art education, knowing yeah. that I wanted to stay in the museum field, um, which that was another reason that I was really drawn to the program here. Um, I think for some people, it can be a pretty laid back experience if they want it to be, yeah. you know, taking um, maybe three or four classes max. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of fun stuff to do around Denton. And I think a lot of um, especially maybe a grad students who go straight from undergrad to grad school probably enjoy more of the social opportunities here. Um, but I was in it to get everything I could. Yeah. Um, so I had a half time, um, two teaching assistant positions that totaled a half time um, load. I was taking at least three, if not four classes a semester, which is more than a full load. Yeah. Um, volunteering at the collection between 10 and 20 hours a week, uh, you know, just trying to hustle. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, th I think that that made a big difference. Yeah. Um, in retrospect, I think the two years I was in the master's program, it was basically an extended job interview for the position I have now. Yeah, um, yeah. So I'm glad I really pushed myself. So uh, spending time at the collection, what it, what is that? Well, first of all, t describe what the collection is. You, you did a little bit in the number of pieces, but where did it come from? Like, why, why is it important? 
Um, so if you're if you walk into our space, it's basically the biggest, coldest closet you can possibly imagine. Um, so if you can picture about 1300 square feet, two stories high, packed floor to ceiling with garments and accessories, um, basically all of them donated by people who have lived in this area. How many square feet? Um, about 13,000 square feet, two, two stories. Yeah, it's 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 incredible. That's a big building if it was one story that'd be a very yeah. large building yeah it's it's massive um we have these big industrial ladders we have to use to get up to the second story of clothing um oh, wow. because it's yeah, oh there's not like a level no you can't walk oh wow no yeah <laughs> it's like a like a harry potter library type situation for clothes exactly exactly and um, it has to be refrigerated to keep the moths away exactly yeah so we have um basically three levels of security to get into the space really? and then once you're in there the lights are almost always off but we have uv filters over them for um for when they are on to make sure there isn't light damage um we freeze everything that comes into our collection for at least three out. days exactly to kill insects <laughs> and eggs yeah so if anyone cool. at home is having problems with moths if you just like throw just your it. exactly yeah throw your sweater in the freezer yeah you'll be fine yeah um we Hot often tip. uh vacuum pieces before they come into the collection um, i mentioned basically everything has come to us through donation um, but we we turn down about 99 percent of what people offer us um, both because mm. people are so generous but also because our storage space is you know basically like bursting at the seams if you'll forgive the the wow. turn of phrase so how did it start um, the collection was started in 1938 by um, stanley and edward marcus of neiman marcus which i think most people know about um, they were celebrating basically the 30th anniversary of the department store. Um, and I think we're maybe in reflecting on that history, wanting to make sure that some of it was preserved. Hmm. Um, and especially thinking about, you know, Dallas still um, kind of trying to elbow its place into, um, you know, that, that short list of major cultural cities in the U.S. Having something like a fashion collection is a way to um, kind of establish yourself. You know, you can't prove that you're important if you don't have a history and history is demonstrated through archives and museums. Hmm. Um, so the Marcus brothers decided to start a small fashion collection. Um, it still boggles my mind that two men in the retail world um, are the ones who started a collection that's now at a, a public university, um, thinking that they were so forward thinking um, in yeah. doing that. In the 30s. Exactly. Yeah, that's crazy. How did, it, how did it end up at UNT and not like SMU? Yeah, so um, the Neiman Marcus collection um, grew to the point that it was difficult for the store to manage it on their own. So they um, shifted it to what was called the Dallas Museum of Fashion, which was run by people in the fashion industry in Dallas okay. and housed at the Apparel Mart. Um, then it basically continued to grow. And um, because people who worked in the fashion industry were running it, um, they wanted to make sure that this research resource could be directed to students who would then be trained and then enter the ranks, you know, alongside them. Um, mm. So there were lots of conversations about, you know, many places where the collection could be rehomed. Um, I think the Smithsonian Institution was considered, but um, UNT won out in the end. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, D.C., Denton. That's like this, you know, it's right. always on the list. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, how is it not its own museum? Like, it's enough to fill several museums. How, like, how is there not a museum, I guess, surrounding this? Or is there that, that I just don't know about? 
Um, so I, I think there have been some kind of structural is- issues in our past that have kind of kept us at a much lower profile than I think the collection probably warrants. Um, part of it is that universities have a lot of resources, but they go in a lot of different directions. Yeah. Um, and often the arts you know, really have to elbow their way to have a place at the table when it comes to conversations about research. Um, fashion has long been considered more commercial than artistic. Um, so, you know, commercial. Because of people like me. Yeah. Like, What's this about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think there is something to some of that um, public perception, but also at a university, I think everything can be treated as a research topic and be considered, um, you know, in a serious way and with dignity. And I think fashion warrants that. Um, So I think it's a combination of some of those political things that um, come with being at a university. Um, The collection has been very sparsely staffed for a long time. Um, So our former director, Myra Walker, was there for 30 years and she was a fashion design faculty member. So, you know, 20 hours a week, nine months a year. That's how long she could really, she was being compensated for performing her duties as director. Hmm. Um, So I feel lucky now that I'm a staff person. Um, I'm around constantly, basically. (laughs) Can invest almost too much in helping the collection grow. And I think even just that change has really meant the collection has a higher profile now. Yeah, totally. I know about it, so. Yeah, So. What's the talk about the collection? Like, kind of what's in it? Uh, what, what what's it mostly made of? Um, so the collection primarily is women's wear by Euro American designers. Um, so you know, if you think about people from France or or London or you know places around the U.S., um, it's primarily clothing that has been worn by fairly elite people. Um, so if you think about the people who tend to donate to museums, those sorts of demographics definitely have impacted how our collection is formed. Um, so to be frank, it's mostly things that have been owned by upper class white women from the DFW area who are slightly older and have sort of conservative <laughs> taste. You know, to, really to be specific, very specific. Yeah. Uh, demographic you yeah. just listed there yeah and i think i think it's important to think about that though because often hearing we have twenty thousand pieces you'd imagine we have a little bit of everything mm-hmm. um, but our collection really is impacted by the donor base that we've had hmm. um, and i think a, a benefit to that is that not everyone gets to go to paris and have you know haute couture created for them specifically for their bodies yeah. um, you know a suit from a couturier could start at tens of thousands of dollars so to yeah, describe what that is because a lot of people mm-hmm. don't know what that is um haute couture yes yeah digging deep on that one yeah oh this is one of my favorite things to talk about because the word couture gets thrown around all the time fascinating (laughs) stuff so the the only reason i know about it i went to a several years ago at the dallas museum of art they had there was some french designer that did a big show and it blew my freaking mind who who was it jean-paul gautier that's it yeah (laughs) i was like that was this guy i i know that thing it's amazing, but anyways, yeah. fantastic stuff. So, kind of d- dig into what that is. Um, so, many people consider haute couture kind of the beginning of high fashion. Um, the way it's kind of defined now is by a very narrow set of designers who work in Paris and have an atelier or workshop there that employs a minimum number of people. 
um, those couturiers, the the fashion designers, have to present a certain number of looks um, for a spring summer show and a fall winter show. Um, there are standards set for quality. Um, so if you think about kind of like a medieval guild system, where if you you know weren't uh, if your your work does not pass muster, you get booted out. Yeah. Um, you can imagine that level um, you know of attention being paid to the craft of creating something. Um, I think a major benefit to that system is that it really means that the people who purchase French haute couture almost consider themselves to be patrons of the fashion arts. Oh, yeah. You know, so for yeah. some people, having a poster on their wall is great. Other people would prefer to have an original artwork. Um, some people really prefer to, you know, patronize um, haute couture and really push um, fashion arts forward to really yeah. invest resources. But you got to be a certain, you got to be a certain type of person. Like. If I, I couldn't show up anywhere. I mean, everyone would make fun of me for that, you know. Like, oh, I got the. I went. I went to France. Decided to drop a bill on this, you know. Yeah, well, I, 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 I couldn't wear anything like that. I think it's the same thing with cars. You know, some people afford Taurus is fine, and some people want a Lamborghini. And yeah, if they yeah. have the resources, but like anyone yeah. can drive a Lamborghini, though. Like anyone, like anybody can pull up in a Lamborghini. It's like, oh, that's a sweet car. I don't. I, I think French haute couture could be the same thing. I think it's a mentality. <laughs> maybe, maybe you got to rock something like that. I think. Yeah. You know, you'd be surprised. I mean, some of the pieces, especially on the runways, those are really um, kind of like billboards for the most fantastical things that designers can create. Okay. But most of what um, <clears throat> couturiers create are just things that are beautifully created yeah. that are made to fit one person's yeah. body. And there's like intricate, like down to, I mean, every little single stitch is like a piece of art almost. I mean, it's. Exactly. immaculate stuff yeah. yeah precision precision yeah there's no detail that isn't considered um there's a lot of hand stitching usually yeah um, a lot of french um, um people working in haute couture often contract work out to people who have been making pleats for decades yeah. to people who have been doing embroidery the for decades pleater. exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah and it, i mean it almost sounds like a, a joke maybe you know like i own nothing that's pleated in my wardrobe because i don't live my life with my clothing in a way that you know i can uh -huh. maintain something like that <laughs> yeah, um yeah. but i i think it's really exciting for the the craftsmanship to really still be practiced that's what i like about it because i've looked at like really famous suit designers you know and i'm like oh man having a sweet little custom-made suit would be awesome um and that's what i'm getting at as far as like like what am i what am i chasing with that sort of idea it's like man, i just want something well made to hold it in your hands and like man this is hundreds of years of ideas and trial and error and like this guy got it right and devoted his life to it you know so that's kind of what you're getting with something like that yeah, exactly. And yeah. and I think it's really incredible that, I mean, like you've mentioned, most of us don't spend time flying to Paris to have multiple fittings for a garment. Um, you know, most um, haute couture starts in the tens of thousands of dollars because yeah. people are investing so much time in honing their craft. Um, so it's pretty incredible to me that we can just, you know, mosey down the street to the Texas fashion collection <laughs> yeah, and exactly. And see what fits. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that would not be happening, <laughs> um, but we really do allow people, especially mm. through one-on-one -on -one research appointments to actually handle the pieces, to look at the insides, um, and see how they've been constructed to look at every single stitch. Yeah. Um, and I think it's incredible, especially for students at UNT, many of whom are first generation college students, UNT 
he's now a minority serving institution, um, that there basically are no barriers for people um, to come see these pieces. You know, I grew up on a farm in rural Western Kansas. No one would ever think that I'd get to spend time with pieces that Christian Dior created. Um, but places like the Texas Fashion Collection are there so that everyone has opportunity. Yeah, man, that is crazy. What's the weirdest piece over there? Well, my my favorite, which might be one of the weirder ones, is a tiara made out of chicken wire, glitter, and glue from the 1930s. It's <laughs> fabulous. How did how did that come about? Who um, made that? What, I, what French designer made that? Well, something delightful <laughs> about our collection is that many of the pieces are designer unknown. Um, so strangely, we have no donation records for this piece. I have no clue when it even entered the collection, but somehow someone made that. Some intern brought it in and like <laughs> left it on a shelf and was like, dude, they're going to think this is like amazing someday. <laughs> well, I'm so glad someone did, yeah. honestly, because I can imagine it's probably the only chicken wire tiara in any museum and anywhere huh. in the world. Is it like ornate? Was it crafted well? I mean, is there any, anything nice about it that stands out? Uh, honestly, not necessarily. It looks kind of like you'd probably Just, imagine. Yeah, okay. um, but yeah. I, for me, that's kind of a gateway piece um, to enter the collection because I didn't grow up around French yeah. haute couture, but on a farm, I grew up with chicken wire. Huh. Um, and thinking about like someone just wanting to be a fantastical version of who they are, um, like I can imagine 10-year-old Annette making a chicken wire tiara. And through that, then maybe I could think about, you know, a billionaire spending time in Paris buying haute couture because mm -hmm. I think the mentality behind those two things is pretty similar. Have you digitized it yet? That one we haven't. It's so hard to photograph. Yeah. You've tried. <laughs> um, yeah, I do. I do have a few images on my cell phone though, because it's it's something you know. Sometimes there are hard days spending too much time working on grant applications, and you have to be reminded of why you're doing this awful thing. That's funny. You should send that to me. I'll put it in the post. I will. You know, people would be interested in it. What is the oldest piece you got? Um, the oldest one we have is a pre-Columbian textile fragment from Bolivia that's about a thousand years old. What? Yeah, hand-woven. Oh um, this is from long before synthetic dyes were invented. Um, so the red color in it was most likely made with cochineal, which are these teeny tiny bugs um, yeah, that you yeah, have yeah. to hand pick off cacti, and it takes thousands of them to yeah. make just a tiny bit of dye. So to us, you know, we go to Target, a red shirt costs as much as a yellow shirt. Yeah. But for this textile, that red really means something. Yeah, but they didn't have anything to do back then. Like, <laughs> like we've got so many things that are way cooler than picking bugs off a cactus. So it was made in Bolivia or? Yeah, that's what our records indicate. Okay. Um, I think that piece, if I'm remembering correctly, came to us through Stanley Marcus and some of his collecting. Oh, okay. um, he traveled around the world and um, developed a pretty interesting collection of cultural artifacts. Wow. Yeah. Man, that's cool. And when you say pre-Columbian, like pre-Columbus Columbian. Like, exactly. So it was native made, basically. Exactly. I mean, the native, uh, oh, wow a thousand years old yeah yeah give or take <laughs> i'm trying to wrap my head around that like that that is insane that it exists uh what what does it look like is it falling apart or is it um so it's how would you describe it it's definitely a textile fragment. Um, okay. So it probably was part of something much larger. Gotcha. Um, but if you look at it, like you might guess it were much newer um, because it hasn't really faded. Um, yeah. The integrity of the, like the weave structure is still there. Um, so it's really something that you can look at it and learn something about how it was created. It, it doesn't look like it's just in tatters. Yeah. And that's kind of the, uh, I'm trying to kind of 
get get around this main idea why is it important that that we have this and we can study this and and one of the reasons you've kind of commented on is anybody can take a look at how these things were constructed there's so many ways to construct a a, a shirt or a pair of pants or a dress or whatever that different ways of it being constructed could lend to new ways of it being constructed or a new way of doing things now. Am I kind of closing in on, on why this is important? Yeah, I think especially since the Texas Fashion Collection is part of the College of Visual Arts and Design at UNT, seeing it as a design research resource yeah. is really critical. Um, you know, both for looking to the past and kind of calling ideas that have maybe been pushed aside, uh, but then also to inspire new thought for the future. Um, but I, I have to admit, as a cultural historian and as an art educator, I think maybe what's most important to me about the collection um, is that clothing can embody a humanity that we might not encounter regularly. So you might be able to see, um, for example, a jingle dress um, that a, a Native American person wore that's hand created. You might be able to imagine then someone wearing that and dancing in it. And then in that, you might be able to understand their worldview in a way that you might not have otherwise. Um, you know, you might be able to see uh, a 1940s suit that someone refashioned out of um, their grandpa's coat because there were no resources around. There was not textile to spare. And you might be able to think about your own wardrobe in a different way, your own relationship with your clothing. Um, I think clothing is a way to really connect with someone else's humanity and perspective. And in 2020, it's pretty easy for us to see differences, but sometimes imagining another body and the perspective it represents in front of you um, can really make the world feel much smaller and more intimate. Yeah, because the distinction is it's so easy for us to get online. I need a tank top. Click, click, click. Tomorrow. Sweet. Got a tank top. That's a new thing. Mm -hmm. As of t 10 years ago, we could do that. Back in the day, it was like you got to handpick the little bugs off the thing if you want the color red, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So much more went into clothes. Do you think we lose something? Are we losing our ability to put humanity into our clothes because we're consumer as opposed to, you know, the like what they're doing in France? Uh, obviously, that is going to be preserved and studied, but it's not for the masses, you know? It's, uh, it's, have we lost something? Um, sometimes it's hard not to feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think in some ways it's exciting that fashion has been democratized, that people can have fairly well-made things if they choose, if they seek them out um, in, a, in a fairly accessible way. Um, so maybe historically having good, sturdy, well-made clothing would be, you know, uh, at a price point that most people could not reach. Yeah. Um, but today I think it it is accessible and I think that's really exciting for us. Um, I'm really encouraged by some of the slow fashion movements um, that are like starting what? now. Um, I, th I think it's, it's kind of just an, an overall perspective that a lot of, especially fashion designers and some retailers have started to take 
um, where maybe we don't have a spring summer and a resort and a fall winter um, and maybe a, like a pre-fall collection that we don't have to have this constant churning of newness um, in the world of fashion to feel like you're constantly on the cutting edge and that you're you're in style. Um, so maybe instead encouraging people to buy clothing only when they need them. Um, maybe designers create mm. collections that um, from season to season, you can mix pieces from different collections and not feel like you have to start over new. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think a lot of that can be compared to, to you know, a, a push against fast food right now, that what's easy and cheap is mm. not always good. So sometimes if you slow down and really make conscious decisions about what you're putting in your life, it's better for everyone. <laughs> yeah. So I learned that about shoes about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Got a pair of Red Wings mm-hmm. that I still have today uh, that I've resold several times. And I, I was like, I'm tired of buying a $100 shoe once every two years. I'd rather buy a $350 shoe. I'm going to have till I die. Mm-hmm. I still have this pair of shoes. And that, that made me think, I do this mostly with shoes. I could spend a lot of money on a pair of shoes. <laughs> Uh, especially in cowboy boots it's like uh, get a custom made you know exactly handmade how you want it and spend spend whatever because you're gonna you're gonna give them to your son mm-hmm. that's a big deal you know took me a while to come around to that idea because i was brought up just to get, get what you need you know if you can get a sale that's great but i guess it kind of seems like this though like and this is a big question i've always had in the 1700s you had dudes wearing wigs and that was the thing to do how do you get from that to tight rolling your pants like like how does it change and it doesn't seem like we've changed much from like the in 20 years it kind of seems homogenized it's just sort of that what they were wearing in Seinfeld is basically kind of what people are wearing today, give or take a length here or there. But back in the day, it seemed like every 10 years there was like some thing that was like, Oh, now we're wearing beaver hats or whatever it was. Uh, is it slowing down because of technology and access to information or like, how do you see it changing and how do you see the future? Are we all going to be dressed like Star Trek? <laughs> I guess that's my question. Dare to dream, right? Is it all going to get so bland that we're just like wearing colors? Like, okay, he's a red shirt. Or, you know, um, where where does it go from here? And how did did that stuff happen so crazy? I know that's a lot to unpack. No, yeah, I am really excited that... So historically, fashion history has really focused on women's clothing. And I'm glad there's kind of a a tide change to shifting towards um, women and gender nonconforming and things that... Um, you know, definitely push against um, a standard that's been set about what matters. Um, for male fashion history... Um, well, it's kind of utilitarian, right? A little bit. I think it is and it isn't. But like the dandy stuff was like, what, what is going on with that? It's frilly and lace and uh, all that stuff. Like, I don't know. So I think a, a major shift um, happened from the 1700s to the 1800s. Um, in the 1700s, most, most clothing was meant to communicate status. Um, so you weren't wearing things that really necessarily first showcased who you were. You were showcasing how much money you could spend on your clothing to demonstrate who you were and why you mattered. 
Um, so for example, at the Texas Fashion Collection, we were recently gifted um, a collection of uh, court coats, so um, coats that men would have worn to go visit, you know, Versailles um, to go see the king in France. Yeah. Um, so to visit Versailles, there is basically a dress code, and that required that you spent a ridiculous amount of money. Really. So part of that was because to have fancy clothing, you had to have status. So it's basically like you're walking around with your business card on your clothing. If you had a particular status, the only way to keep it was to dress according to that. If you had a lower status, you weren't allowed to dress up, um, dress up the chain. And part of that was because people would basically spend themselves into bankruptcy trying to posture their way further up the ladder. What do you mean um, you weren't allowed to? Like it was frowned upon or there were like rules like how oh, you can't wear that jacket? Yeah, they were called sumptuary laws. Like it Whoa. was written. It yeah. was written. Um, so things like um, like ermine, um, only people of certain statuses and classes were allowed to wear that. Um, interestingly, what is, what is that? Um, so ermine is a kind of fur. Um, it's basically like a little ferrety thing. <laughs> yes. Um, I want one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Give me uh, one of those. Yeah. Really interestingly, a tool to, to help make sure that people were following sumptuary laws um, is that some of the few people who were allowed to break them were prostitutes. So if you dressed outside <laughs> of your status, um, you know, people might raise an eyebrow about your moral character what? which is basically dinging your your social status that's wild yeah so you know people, i didn't know that's where it came from or the, like i always wondered like why are they wearing those pants like that yeah like, yeah where'd that come from a lot of it is that it was required um and really beyond just communicating status especially in france you know now even today we consider france you know kind of the capital of fashion especially paris um, so the French government actually structured itself in the late um, 1600s to, to throw a bunch of resources towards guilds and basically like industries that related to fashion. Um, so with that, basically France required people, especially who had a lot of resources, to patronize embroiderers and tailors who were French. Um, so part of going to visit Versailles and wearing your fancy coat was showing that you had the money to pay a bunch of embroiderers to hand stitch this thing. Yeah, like you support the government. You exactly. Yeah, you support the economy. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And you know, today we have this like made in the USA, you know, kind of thing that I think rightly many people are very proud, um, you know, to say that about things that they own and clothing that they wear. You know, there's an ideology behind where and how something is made. Yeah. Um, so in the 1700s, that was kind of the mentality behind most clothing. But then following, for example, the French Revolution, right. um, the way people present themselves in public, um, you know, was supposed to be a little bit more democratic. Um, so in the past, fashion historians have called that shift, especially in men's fashion, the great renunciation. So basically this idea that men, you know, kind of stopped caring, which is actually the fur furthest thing from the truth that you can possibly imagine. Yeah. Um, everything just shifted from being about big lace cravats around your neck and flashy embroidery that had, you know, gold, you know, sewn through it. It went from that to being all about subtle details. Yeah. Um, so about, you know, uh, the, the shape of 
the tails on your coat, about how how white your shirt can possibly be, about how starched your collar is. <laughs> so, you know, even if you think about, um, oh, yeah. what is it, that movie with, is it Patrick Bateman, where he's like flashing his business card? What is that movie? American Psycho. Yeah, yeah, American Psycho. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, and he's like, oh, the raised ink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. This is heavy card. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So imagine that sort of mentality applied to clothing. Well, I yeah. Think, well, people, dudes still do that, especially in, in this orbit, you know? Right. Like there's some, uh, what is it that everyone wears right now? Hillburn is what, what the dudes that are of something, you know, wear. And the big thing, the whole insider thing is on the jackets. If you have a suit with functional buttons that's like one of those details that if you know what to look for and you see that it's like oh oh exactly. guys got it going on and if you're not looking for it or don't know it's like a little insider uh little insider trick you know or a little secret that you're sharing like oh yeah nice buttons on that jacket you know right yeah. <laughs> and in some ways isn't that like no less elite than- totally oh absolutely yeah. yeah yeah if you got a hillburn suit it's like you got it going on. That's what Troy Aikman wears. You know, that's legit. Exactly. And there's almost no way to fake that because if you're in the know, you'll recognize when someone is not playing that game. Oh man, (laughs) my mind is kind of blown. Um, that's crazy that, so, okay. So the French revolution happens and basically it's the first period of grunge, like people not caring, but really caring. (laughs) Um, how did, how did all that translate to, uh american fashion was were we trying to copy i mean and it seemed like in the beginning we were uh we we were directly trying to do the uh the nod to england and and france um how did how did we get to us wearing just like what we're wearing today lead me through that (laughs) yeah can can you draw a connection for me um because i'm fascinated by this like <laughs> i didn't think i'd be that interested but now i'm like oh this is amazing right this is yeah. the story of us right yeah, yeah. i love it yeah. um so i think if we go back to like the american revolution there are a few different ways especially that men approach their clothing so there's someone like benjamin franklin who intentionally wore homespun cloth that looked a little rough and crude because he was showing that he cared more about democracy and being of the people the common man exactly yeah. exactly so when he for example went to paris he kind of made a big splash because he clearly looks so different from yeah. the other people he was around. Um, but then also America as a young nation is really trying to establish itself on, you know, an international in an international sphere. And the way you do that is by, you know, figuring out what suit is appropriate to wear and then basically like making sure you look like you're in the in crowd. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of different ways of playing that game. Um, and of course there are a lot of non elite people who are just wearing what they could find, yeah. <laughs> um, which I think we can still relate to today. Um, with men's fashion, I think through most of the, the 1800s, um, the silhouettes of it changed a little bit um, as you know, women's silhouettes changed too. So at different points, men were wearing corsets and things co- yeah. to kind of create more of an hourglass and pants shape. like started up here. Exactly. Exactly. Just slowly went down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's some shaping that comes with that. So we often think of women's bodies as being, you know, highly shaped by undergarments, but historically men's bodies have been too. Um, men sometimes wore um, like padding in their calves um, to make sure that their, their calves looked extra much 
muscular. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. That's bizarre. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, like, is it any more bizarre than a, a padded bra today? I mean, you know, we're all selectively just as choosing. Bizarre. Just yeah, as right. bizarre, actually. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think through um, through a lot of the the 1800s, men's clothing shifted slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think then maybe in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, there was kind of a push towards more casual clothing for most people. Um, so that's when things like sweaters, um, people started wearing that. Um, knits, like if you're thinking about like a stretchy t-shirt or a pair of shorts, um, became something that people wore as outer garments instead of just undergarments. There's kind of a, a general um, relaxing of clothing, hmm. which I think is something we can relate to today. Yeah. Um, you know, in the night. Well, yeah, like so, so even uh, during the pandemic, we're all wearing shorts now. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> the only meetings we have are from here up. So, so I'll I'll put pants on when I have to go show a building or show up in person somewhere. But like today, I'm like I look like I got off a yacht, basically. <laughs> I'm, you know, I've got shorts on. Um, but yeah, the, so the pandemic kind of accelerated the relaxation of clothes. Yes, I am. I'm going to be so curious about what happens when um, you know maybe more of us start going out and doing things again. Um, especially when maybe business meetings <laughs> yeah. are happening in person and not on Zoom. Are we all going to be in pajamas still? Or yeah, like mm. I'm. I'm curious if that will be the case that we've gotten so used to not having to fight our clothing um, that we will start wearing elastic waistbands all the time, mm-hmm. or if instead, uh, which is often the case in fashion history, we'll respond aggressively in the opposite direction mm-hmm. yeah, that everyone yeah. is going to wear the flashiest things they can possibly find because we're just so exhausted by being bored of our clothing. <laughs> yeah. Or just find whatever fits because shut down. Right. Add some pounds. Yeah. COVID-19. Yeah. That's what it is. It's like the freshman 15. So, so now that that exact thing is happening tomorrow, we have like a big, uh, inter office lunch at the country club tomorrow. And I'm like, I'm going to get out of my pants. I'm going to, I might wear a tie. Might even wear a tie. (laughs) That's crazy. So is that kind of the trend? We started off basically kind of doing the French thing, but then basically wearing kind of homespun cloths and stuff like that. And it's just a relaxation. It's a constant like letting it out, basically. I mean, because it is getting less and less formal. Even 20 years ago, uh, banker friends of mine, would tell me it was suit and tie every single day. If you didn't show up suit and tie, you you were getting kicked to the curb, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I I think definitely the pendulum swings a lot in the 20th and I think now 21st century. So if you think about um, things being more casual in maybe the 20s and 30s, um, you know, then late 40s and 50s, um, I think society got more conservative in a lot of ways, Mm. you know, men coming back from World War II, a lot of um, maybe women leaving the workforce, um, people maybe want to have genders differentiated more. And I think with that comes a certain amount of formality. But then if you think about the the late 60s, there's a push against that. A lot of high fashion designers were making unisex clothing and people are pushing against gender performance. Mm-hmm. Um, then the 80s, things get conservative again. Um, you know, mm. then maybe like the late 90s and early 2000s, you see people wearing guy liner, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, really, really pushing back against some of those standards again. 
Um, and I can't help but think that, especially with things like social media, where more perspectives are more visible now, yeah. that in the future, I think it might be slightly harder to say there's one real look that's defining, yeah. um, you know, a, a fashion season. Or, you know, can you imagine defining an entire decade with one look? Yeah. Yeah. I, I honestly don't think that will be possible in the future. And it makes me wonder if in the past that was really actually a thing either, or if we've just flattened everything to make it easier to digest yeah because we didn't have access to insert there's no 1940s instagram to go back and be like oh yeah that's what they were wearing exactly yeah. um yeah and the other thing is like if you look at what comes out of japan it's like that's on a whole other level like the fashion that comes out of there it's like what are they doing over there like hipsters over there are uh, i mean like exponentially hipsterish <laughs> like from it's like uh cosplay almost you know mm -hmm. yeah it's fascinating i love japanese have fashion you been there so much. have you been to japan i was planning on going this oh, year and then man. yes i gotta um, go yeah i just want to check it out i i like will look up walking through tokyo on youtube mm -hmm. and just like dream i love it yeah maybe i'll have to do that tonight yeah it's super <laughs> a little cool. covid vacation yeah yeah go on a little vacation on youtube <laughs> but it's so crazy because they just they get really intense about taking things in a certain direction mm -hmm. and it becomes a thing and it, they name it and it's a thing and that's a thing it's crazy yeah Jap japanese fashion is fascinating what was um, that thing that they had the karuku what was it the i can't remember madonna did it for a little bit for a second oh the, there was like the hirajuku thing yeah, that gwen hirajuku. stefani yeah, did um gwen so that's stefani, a really yeah. um specific region um or like basically a specific neighborhood yeah. um so you can imagine um for example like if you if you know like gay communities in fashion the castro in san francisco you know in the 1960s and 70s had a very specific look if you can imagine like freddie mercury later in his life yeah um so basically Hirojuku describes the fashion of a very specific place. Um, so it's definitely kind of a fashion subculture. Um, it's a, a group of people that basically have their own set of fashion rules that they're developing. Um, and that kind of exists slightly outside most of the fashion rules that we see in fashion magazines or, you know, in, in mainstream media. Um, and I think Japan is pretty interesting in that it, I think there are a fair number of subcultures that kind of exist with clothing there. Um, I can't help but imagine part of that relates to um, kind of the colonial history of Japan, um, thinking about there being a, a very specific way of dressing there than having Admiral Perry come in and introduce basically, you know, European standards for dress and expecting people to, to shift how they dress formally to fit that. Then following World War II, um, a mm. lot of people trying to push against um, traditional Japanese culture, knowing that that's kind of how a lot of atrocities happened with that war, um, wanting to find a new way of being. Um, honestly, some of my favorite designers are from Japan because um, I think they some oh, of them yeah. have just different rules for design. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a, a good example of that is um, if you compare like a, a Western style suit, like a three piece suit, like most business businessmen wear to a kimono. Um, so a, a Western style suit is all about basically cutting fabric into smaller and smaller pieces until it perfectly fits, you know, basically right next to someone's skin. Um, you know, you're basically, you know, cutting into cloth, almost destroying it to try to make a two dimensional surface fit your three dimensional form. 
Um, but in Japan, if you think about a kimono, um, it's basically big pieces of uncut cloth that are just stitched together just enough um, so that they can sort of uh, abstractly reflect the form within. Um, so the point of a kimono is never that it fits you like a three-piece suit. There's intentionally space between your body and the fabric. It's just a radically different way of thinking about how fabric can interact with your mm. form. So it's kind of like, um, you know, if you tried to get the the rules for the game of life and play Clue with them, yeah. you know, it's, they're just two very different things. Oh, that's um, wild. Yeah. yeah. So who's the Japanese designer? He did a pair of pants for david bowie that are all like super highly pleated and uh have, oh, you, have you seen this yeah you know kanzai yamamoto about? that's is it yeah, brilliant. yeah, yeah. he just passed away oh, too did he? yeah oh man yeah that's uh, crazy yeah he he's an incredible designer this stuff is crazy so we were in santa fe we were <laughs> we went into some shop we had no business being on but i was like we're trying on everything <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there was this rack of his stuff like and it's like silk basically and it's just super finely like ironed or something or pleated or, or i mean and everything was just geometric but like flowing and wavy but accordion shaped and stuff it was, it was incredible yeah. and all sorts of different colors that was amazing yeah so that one's actually isei miyaki and that's his pleats oh, please okay. line that he's been making if i'm remembering correctly since the 80s or 90s um i actually just did a short video lecture on one of his pieces in our collection oh, wow, of, yeah. um, from that line um, so Issei Miyake being from Japan has really created um, a really symbiotic relationship with the textile industry there. And he created this, I think, basically patented way to create pleats that they basically yeah. stay forever. Yeah. Um, so it's a synthetic fabric. It's basically like a step away from plastic. And all of those pleats, those fine folds are heat set. Yeah. Um, so basically you're melting the plastic into that form. Oh, so it'll stay wow. like that forever. That's wild. Um, and he, he really does play with a lot of geometry. Mm -hmm. um, so thinking about those abstract forms you were talking about, that's, you know, that's the, the great grandson of a, a kimono. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. And what I love about this is like, I have not thought about clothes as an expression of humanity ever before, mm -hmm. like in this sort of way. So that, man, this is a fascinating conversation. Um, so the, back to the collection, um, the, the big deal that we kind of touched on for just a split second was that it's getting digitized. Yes. What does that mean? How do you digitize clothes? Um, it is a process. I'll just say that. Um, so what's really important to us about digitization, which is basically um, photographing and describing pieces in our collection so that they're accessible to people who can't physically come to our space. Um, that might sound like a pretty simple thing since we, you know, in our everyday lives, photograph things and post text with them on Instagram and, you know, any sort of social media platform. Um, but we're basically treating all of our garments as though they're something like a library book um, that you really need to be able to find the things you want through searching through our collection. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, so, and because I care deeply about materiality and the pieces in our collection, basically not just being an image that exists, I want the images that we create to kind of represent the thing as it is. Um, so a way of thinking about that might be, um, you might find a, a photo of a painting 
Um, and you might get a good sense of what that painting is depicting, but you won't understand how light reflects off acrylic mm -hmm, paint yeah. instead of oil paint, which is kind of dull. You won't be able to see the brush strokes kind of built up if someone's being really expressive with the paint. Yeah, it's funny to kind of see a great painting in real life that you've seen a lot of in print, and it's shocking sometimes. Like uh, Starry Night is one that I, kind of sticks out in my mind. When you first see it, it's like, oh, that, all that stuff sticks out yes right there yeah, yeah yeah and i mean e even to take it to a completely mundane place buying a tank top online how many of us have read you know th a three-word description of a tank top and seen one photo of it we buy it and then when it comes in the mail it's not at all what we imagined yeah, yeah. because we didn't get to see you know maybe the backside of it we didn't get to see how the seams are finished on the inside um maybe the way the size was described didn't really work very well with our yeah. proportions it's like that big exactly like two, two inches big <laughs> that happens to me all the time <laughs> yeah so so basically in digitizing our collection i want people to be able to look at the records we're creating and see maybe seven photographs of one piece basically imagine the entire thing in the round to see details of embroidery that someone spent hundreds of hours hand creating mm -hmm. um, i want people to be able to to see the the screen printed um you know basically like paint or ink on the surface of a shirt mm -hmm. and see where it's built up in some places and imagine someone making that um, but then on top of that, you know, we're inundated with images constantly. And the way you find them is by searching with words. Keywords. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So as we're digitizing our collection, um, I feel really lucky to have really talented photographers in our space, um, mainly drawn from um, master's students um, studying photography at UNT. Um, their skills are incredible. And really in looking at the photographs they've created, I'm seeing pieces in our collection in entirely new and fresh ways. Um, but no one will be able to find their photographs if we don't have good descriptions. So I'm spending lots of time um, trying to develop a, a stronger expertise in textiles, which is probably the most like technical finicky thing I've ever tried to set my mind to. What so you can describe what it is? Or so people can search what, what, what type of weave this is or whatever. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's something that's actually really complicated because you think of something like um, like a, a record in a library catalog as being very neutral, that it's basically like just the facts. But there are so many ways of creating just the facts. So if you and I were to both describe this bottle of hand sanitizer, we might use different words. You know, if we were to describe the color of this, one of us might say mint mm -hmm. and one would say green. Mm -hmm. um, so trying to find a vocabulary that kind of catches everyone's thoughts is really a challenge. Um, and especially being at UNT, we have researchers coming from all different perspectives. So are we describing the fiber because we're working with um, material science people and engineering? Are we describing the weave structure because we're working with people who use looms? Are we describing the print mm -hmm. because we're working with graphic design students? Are we describing um, the silhouette because we're working with sculpture students? Um, are we describing the cultural context something was created in because we're working with anth anthropologists or sociologists? You know, you can go on and on and on. I think fashion can touch basically any way of seeing the world. So it's kind of a, a project that you could constantly feed and never say to appetite. <laughs> <laughs> you're making my head hurt. Um, <laughs> how do you decide you can't, you're not going to do all of them. <laughs> how do you decide which ones to do? How do, how do you pick? 
Um, so right now in digitizing our collection, I'm focusing um, first on designers of color because I think they're the ones that are left out most frequently. Mm. You know, who hasn't heard of Christian Dior? Um, most people have not heard of Patrick Kelly and he worked in Paris too. So it's been really important to me to make sure that voices that don't already exist, and especially in museums and archives, are kind of being pushed forward. Mm. Um, then I'm kind of fielding research requests from people who have used the collection. Um, so if uh, a researcher is focused on um, Adrian, who desi designed the costumes for um, The Wizard of Oz, then maybe I'll make sure that all of our Adrian suits get photographed, maybe before Dior, because there's a lot of Dior stuff out there. Um, and then I'm um, focusing on women designers too, because they often get pushed to the side. Um, right now we have about 5,200 pieces that have been digitized of our nearly 20,000 garments and accessories. Um, there's a pretty, um, a pretty good variety of pieces. So if you went to our website right now, you would see paper patterns from the 1940s. You would see. Yeah, I saw that when I was ties. clicking through like all the patterns from the back in the day. That's cool. Yeah, they're yeah. fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy what they sold people. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoyed working on those recently. I think I personally have scanned at least six hundred paper patterns yeah. in the past do you month. So? Uh, I do, but poorly. Yeah. Man, <laughs> um, yeah. a little cottage industry over there, like recreate uh, with those patterns. I mean, you can recreate basically to scale. What, or not to scale, but like exactly what they were creating at the time, you know? Exactly. Yeah, it's a really beautiful abstraction of something that's existed in the past that you can apply to your, your own life. Um, so yeah, you're getting the sizes and proportions. You're getting yeah. descriptions of what fabrics were used. Um, so people were a lot smaller back then, weren't they? Um, I think in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Because you go, walk around castles in France, mm -hmm. and all the doors are tiny. They're squeezing through these little holes. Yeah, I think especially living in Texas where we think everything is better if it's bigger. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think in the past there's been an economy with resources that we don't necessarily exercise today. Mm -hmm. um, so why would you have a huge doorway if your body can fit through a much smaller one, you mm. know? Yeah, um, and I think it is true that historically people's bodies were less robust because, you know, industrialized food and better medical care have yeah. definitely made us, you know, healthier and sicker in a yeah, lot yeah, of ways. Yeah. Totally. Um, but I also think, especially at the Texas Fashion Collection, people look at, um, you know, a dress from the 1880s and see that it has a 14 inch waist. And then you imagine everyone was that size. Hmm. Um, but often what gets saved is the smallest version of something because someone's grandkid didn't play dress up with the thing they couldn't fit in. Uh, um, you know, someone's, yeah. you know, younger sister isn't going to wear the thing that they, you know, is too small for them. Gotcha. Um, also, historically, um, people have reused fabric from season to season. So they'd unpick all the stitches in a dress at the end of summer. Um, and then maybe at the next spring, pull that fabric out and remake that dress into that year's fashionable silhouette. Mm. So if any of you all have engaged in craft projects, you know, um, you can't undo cuts. Once you've cut into something and made it smaller, it's very hard to make it bigger. So maybe our dress from the from 1880 was actually first made in 1875. And what we have is the last iteration of that, that fabrics um, being turned into a garment. That is wild. Yeah. That yeah. is so cool. Yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. I, I actually have been actively adding pieces to our collection that are not, um, you know, a designer size two or mm -hmm. something that's really petite because I think they're... 
it's really damaging not having larger bodies represented in our collection, mm -hmm. um, especially since it's used as a research resource for people who are fashion designers. If you're taught that the only thing that's beautiful is a size two, you're never going to make a size 20 because you don't have examples of what that can look like. Mm. Um, so it's, yeah, it's important to me. I think diversity matters is something that could probably be an anthem for 2020. Um, but I think that that definitely applies to our collection too. How long is it going to take to get all of it done? Like, do you have a calculation? Or how many do you do like uh, a, a month or? Yeah. Yeah, it, it varies. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, an evening dress um, that takes reproduction undergarments that we have to make because we don't have them, something like that. It could take us 10 hours to digitize that oh. piece. But, you know, digitizing men's ties, you can get through 10 an hour easily. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so right now we're at about a quarter of our collection. Really? Um, yeah. Which is that's exciting. surprising. Yeah. I, I would have guessed like 2%. Yeah. And so big. And so much detail yeah there there's a lot there but also since becoming the director of the collection four years ago this has been my mission yeah like okay. this is i'm making a strategic decision to sink a lot of resources and a lot of time into yeah. doing this there are other ways that we could be directing um, our energies but i'm really passionate about this especially since our collection was donated by you know joe texas yeah. you know by the people around us i think yeah. it, this is something that really belongs to everyone here so keeping it tucked away in a cold dark closet that almost no one can physically visit seems counterproductive and maybe damaging um to you know the spirit of what we are so here's how you here's how you uh market that world's biggest closet not, not cold, dark closet. World's biggest closet with some old, old, old stuff in it. Yeah, and you can't touch anything, which makes it even more exciting. Can't touch it. So what was the, uh, so uh, I'm part of the UNT Diamond Eagle Society, and it's been uh, just a blast. Um, David Broughton suckered me into uh, being involved in it. Awesome guys in my Rotary Club. And what it is, is everyone who's a member pitches in a thousand bucks a year and then uh, collectively everyone throws ev the, the big pot of money at a project and several projects get pitched this year. Uh, yours got picked. What did that donation mean for the digitization of the collection? Uh, I think the short answer is it's been completely transformative for us. Um, so the amount of funding we got from the Diamond Eagles is about five times our annual operating budget, um, which makes it sound like a massive amount of money, um, you know, compared to a lot of, you know, maybe grants that scientists get. It's probably pretty small, but it, it really has made a transformative difference to us. Um, so with the, the money the Diamond Eagles has sent our way, um, we have recently purchased um, basically the, the gold standard for mannequins um, for our digitization <laughs> project. Um, awesome. So shortly there will be 30 fiberglass bodies coming to us from Italy, um, which I'm really excited for. <laughs> oh man, um, if the plane crashes, they're gonna be like, it's a UFO. Right? <laughs> Yeah, That's awesome. yeah, it's in, um, you know, buying new mannequins might not seem like the sexiest, most exciting thing in the world. Um, but it really is to us because we've been able now to buy plus size mannequins. Hmm. Um, so the pieces that aren't size two in our collection will be presented accurately and beautifully and with respect.
effect. Um, right now, we only have white mannequins. And though they're like white, like the, a piece of paper, um, you know, that actually communicates something. Hmm. Um, so the mannequins that we've purchased, some of them are, you know, black like an iPhone screen when it's turned off. And some of them are kind of like a, a deep brown color. Um, so I'm really excited that we'll be able to kind of um, give a nod to the diversity that really is represented in parts of our collection with these um, these mannequins and then really model a more expansive way about thinking who wears things um, mm-hmm. with these new fiberglass bodies. Um, they're also incredibly elegant looking, so that does not hurt. You know, as we create these photographs, it'll be used for publications, already are being used for publications. Mm-hmm. We're really representing our collection in a way that could stand up next to the Met, could stand up next to the Victoria and Albert Museum. We're right there. And, and that's what I thought was so cool about this project and, uh, and why I got behind it was this project is such a vision into the future. It's such a thing that when it gets done, it's here forever and it it becomes it's world-class forever it's not uh something that happens and then that was the thing that happened Uh, it's here i mean there's some longevity here exactly and i'm all about vision and you know vision casting into the future and i thought i thought it was really important to have it and it's such a such a cool thing to have i mean no one else has this agreed it makes us very unique in that way so yeah that's that's awesome that's something i've tried to be really thoughtful with in stepping into the the role of director is that it's really easily to take on project it's easy to take on projects you know kind of in bits and pieces and kind of magpie together something that's beautiful for a moment um, but I think it's much more meaningful and deep to kind of build something sustainably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like these, you're right. These photographs we're taking, my goal is that they, these will be the last <clears throat> photographs we ever have to take of these garments. You know, I'm not into half-assing it just to get more stuff out there. Um, when we have photographers start in our space, often they ask me how many photographs they're expected to take an hour or how many they're expected to edit an hour. And I tell them, you do this the right way. Like, I'm not going to give you a number because that's a made up thing. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to know that the product, like what you're delivering is the best. Yeah. Whatever it takes. Exactly. Well, and you know what you're doing for the next 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like there's no, um, I could do this. No, you're going to be taking pictures of clothes. So. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a, a joy and a delight every week. <laughs> Man, that is so awesome. Is it open to the public? Can I knock on the door and be like, hey, show me some stuff? Um, For better or worse, we aren't open to the public right now. Um, Part of that is with COVID. Um, We really want to make sure to um, protect our staff. Um, But beyond that, our facilities aren't really set up to receive very many visitors. Um, We are open by appointment for researchers. Um, And researcher can take a number of forms. It could be a 12-year-old who thinks they want to become a fashion designer. There we go. It could be a 90-year-old who's looking for inspiration for the next quilt they're making. Um, You know, it could be a a fashion editor for a local magazine um, that's looking for some inspiration. So, you know, we have a lot of academic people in our space, but I think um, people outside of universities also do research. Um, And I'm excited to kind of expand um, an idea of what research can be. 
Um, we, uh, because our facilities aren't the most accessible, I have been making a point of um, arranging exhibitions um, for people to see in other cultural spaces. Hmm. Um, so for the past um, basically five years, we've had exhibitions at North Park Center in Dallas every spring. Um, and what could Where be- Where is that? What is that? Is that the mall? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, North okay. Park, the mall, ha- um, I think they see something like about 30 million visitors a, a year. It's a great um, mall. It's yeah. like such a good mall. Yeah, I mean, it's it, what a mall should be. Yeah, it has a fine art collection. They have yeah. some of the best, um, it, like interior Warhol, landscaping in the world. Yeah, it's, prints. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's incredible. incredible there. Um, and because of that, they also have a really great security staff. Um, they're really careful with the things that are on display, so it's safe for our collection to be there. <laughs> yeah. um, like I've even had the security guards there um, tail me because they think I'm paying too much attention, yeah. and I've turned around and thanked them for their diligence. Uh, <laughs> um, but funny. I don't know. I, th- I think it's exciting. Yeah. Um, we often work with museums, but a space like North Park has free parking. There's no admission. It's along public transportation lines. Um, you don't have to pay anything to be there. You can encounter a fashion exhibition and that not even be what you're seeking out. Yeah. And I love how accessible that space is. That is awesome. That's cool. Where can I find uh, information on the collection? I was um, looking for it. So the best place is our website. That's a, a really good start. Um, and through our website, you'll be able to find uh, the public version of our database through the UNT libraries, which is where you can find about right now 5,200 pieces that have been digitized. Um, I spend much more time updating our social media than our website, though. Okay. <laughs> um, so if you go to Instagram or Facebook, I post pretty regularly on there. Um, and because uh, the collection really is something that's best enjoyed visually, um, on Instagram, I try to post pretty regularly. So if you're interested in seeing kind of behind the scenes looks at what's going on, you can see um, kind of glimpses into research that's happening at the collection, um, video um, showing pieces in our holdings. You can see photographs of our garments before they even hit the database. It's kind of a, an insider's look. What's the handle? Um, I think it's Texas Fashion Collection, okay. all one word. Yeah, I'll look it up. I'll post it in the show notes on this. Perfect. That's awesome. Thank you so much for coming in. This was such a good conversation. I yeah. loved it. This is fun. You had some great questions. I'm glad you you, you pushed back at me a little bit. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. I'm curious. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. How cool is that? Were you with me on some of those questions? I mean, people got to know. How do things end up like that? Anyways, thank you so much for tuning in. I love doing this, and we'll see you next time. Have a good one.